Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 24, we'll be starting in verse 29, continuing here, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is teaching specifically the disciples. He's no longer talking to the scribes and Pharisees, but talking to His people, particularly uh, in private, and dealing largely with uh, the future and what's coming. Hearing pages stop turning, I shall read Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 29. I would remind you this is God's Word. It was written with you in mind. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came, swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, 
The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it's difficult, and we pray that you would give clarity, clarity of speech and clarity of understanding. By the power of your spirit, we ask in Christ's name, amen. I suspect everybody in here, now don't name the name, But I suspect everybody in here will have probably a certain person in mind when we would have a conversation about a a very particular style of driving. Now, some would call it the distracted driver, but that's not actually the the right term for it, right? A, A distracted driver is a person who gets kind of eyes catching all the pretty things moving around or the flashing lights or the moving things and get kind of overwhelmed. The kind of driver I'm talking about is actually a problem because they're not distracted. They're incredibly focused on the wrong thing. I had a coach like this growing up and it was always you know, a bit of a gamble it felt like to ride home in the van with him after uh, a sporting event. You'd uh, be sitting up front and he'd get talking with you about the game and something that you had done well or something that you had done poorly and he's the best coach I ever had. He's an absolutely marvelous coach uh, and could never stop coaching. And so while he was driving, he'd want to instruct you about how to play better and things that you can learn and how you could develop as a, as a man or develop your character or develop your performance. And the problem was that eventually he gets so engrossed in his teaching that he'd let go of the wheel and turn sideways <laughs> and would be gesturing and explaining how this should end. And of course, passenger seat, you're not listening anymore. You hear from the back, coach, <clears throat> coach, coach, totally preoccupied with something very important, teaching us how to be better athletes and better men kind of not paying attention to oncoming traffic. Really uncomfortable to ride with. I suspect for many of us, we go about living our lives like my coach, who I love very dearly. We spend our lives kind of laser-focused on things that we find are incredibly important. Things that shape our happiness, things that shape our health, things that shape the enjoyment of this life, and and sometimes not paying attention to oncoming traffic. So busy with the the pleasures of this life, the eating and drinking, the, the money and the spending, the stuff and the friends and the family and the love that we receive from them, and not paying attention to oncoming traffic. And the inconvenient reality, the oncoming car, is that there is a day for every one of us that the fun and games of this life will end. It doesn't continue like this forever. We don't live this way in perpetuity. Now, I understand that when we're teenagers or in our 20s, almost into our 30s, we like to live like we assume that's going to be the case forever. 
Right? Having entered into my 40s, beginning, beginning to realize, like, even the body is like, nope, <laughs> nope, not going to happen. It ain't going to continue this way forever. We're going to stop working randomly in ways that you don't expect when you're not planning for it. It's just not going to work. Some of you older than that, maybe 60, 70, 80 years old, and begin to understand it's a, a greater reality for you to know that, yeah, the body, it breaks down. It, it's not actually in this condition designed to last forever. And perhaps it's easier for you to be reminded and to live in light of the fact that this grand ride has to come to an end. But I think as a nation, we are determined to be that not distracted driver, but that incredibly focused driver. As a nation, we are intent on living our lives consumed with what we want. What makes us feel good. What makes us happy. And not paying attention to the end. I've said it before. I've been saying it now for, I guess, two years. I, I think, a year and a half, I think this is actually part of why our nation has handled COVID so badly. It's because we've liked to live as a nation that has ignored the reality that we're all going to die. And then suddenly we have kind of this national kind of moment of contemplation to say, oh yeah, by the way, you may have a good run of it for a while. You might actually get eight or nine decades now, maybe a hundred years. But the ride's going to end. It ends for everybody. Whether we like it or not, it's going to be over someday, and for some of us, the great reality is, the vast majority of us, the great reality is that that ride will end for us in death. Death's never pretty. It might be so horrible and exciting as to go out in a moment of terror or shock or horror, perhaps go out with a slow and creeping Weariness in a hospital. But we're going to die. Well, except for some of us. And perhaps, maybe, I don't know, in this room, I don't know what God's plan is. I don't know the timeline. But there is a second option, actually. I mean, we always make the joke of there's two things kind of, you know, determined in life, fixed, that are always going to happen, death and taxes. Uh, And that's true for most people. Most people will die. There is, however, a category for those that won't. Those are the ones that are alive at the end. They're the ones that are actually still living and breathing on this planet when the planet ends. And it doesn't end with some, you know, meteor hit. doesn't end with us using up all of our natural resources and the planet going into some sort of resource death. It doesn't end with solar death. It doesn't end with any of those things. It ends with God bringing time and space, energy and matter to a conclusion. Jesus here is going to have a conversation preparing all of us either for our end in death or our end if we happen to be alive at the end of time and space and matter and energy to prepare us for what that's going to be. 
and what that's going to be like and how to think in light of that. Verses 29 through 31, the point I'm going to highlight from this is I think perhaps a bit obvious, but a noticeable end is coming to all things. The key word here is a noticeable end, noticeable. The end is not going to be some whimper and creation just kind of goes out with a a last gasp of breath or something of the sort like that. No, instead, the end of time and space and matter and energy will be something that everyone will notice and observe. And the confession talks about the ministry of Jesus in two parts, his ministry of humiliation and then his ministry of exaltation. When he came the first time, it was in a ministry of, of humiliation. He was humiliated in all of his aspects of his ministry. He, he stepped inside uh, humanity. He stepped inside the womb of a fallen woman was born of her in not a hospital with the finest of doctors, but born of her in basically an animal hut, raised most likely those first couple of days in what probably, best guess, is probably a little alcove, like a cave or a barn. Grew up in poverty, parented by two sinners, in a part of the world that was insignificant at the time, with low resources, with no glory, with no honor, with very little dignity of any kind. He comes into his ministry, and rather than having all of the best of the best follow him and and listen to him and uh, kind of worship him everywhere he goes, he gets a bunch of bozos, 12 of them, one of which is going to betray him, and the other 11 don't really kind of make a good name of themselves at first. Now, they get the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit changes everything, but the other 11, they're a bit of a mess. Largely uneducated, uh, many of them not what we would even call good men. And then Jesus is murdered. He stays in the grave for a while under the power of the grave and then is raised. And interestingly, rather than having everyone he encounters worship him, rather than having the emperor come and worship him, people hate him even more. This is an amazing thing to raise yourself from the dead and yet be more disliked instead of less. Until eventually he ascends into heaven, uh, leaving behind a small ragtag group of people that would later come to be known by his name, Christians. Again, if you were a betting man or a betting woman, apart from the power of Christ, you would never have bet on the early church. At this point in church history, there are no great scholars There are no great politicians. There are no great theologians at this point in church history. Like I said, you have a group of fishermen and other rotten scoundrels that have had their lives changed. And it's easy for us to kind of sometimes, I think, forget that just because Jesus came that way the first time, he's not going to show up like that the second In fact, really the only kind of real points of continuity, (laughs) that Jesus is there and the motley crew of his people are there, but they're not going to look the same either. Instead, actually, the way it's described here is that this end, the, the close of the age, 
the end of the time of the curse, the end of the time of suffering immediately after the tribulation, it's going to be kind of a rather big deal. The language that Matthew uses here is taken out of Isaiah and Ezekiel, language of cosmic destruction. He's referencing passages dealing with the day of the Lord when God himself returns and steps inside the created order now for his glory, not in humility. What is it going to be like? Well, the sun will be darkened. It's going to disappear. The moon's going to go out. It's going to disappear. The stars will fall from heaven. Uh, The powers of the heavens will be shaken. This is not going to be the kind of thing that is perhaps a bit unnoticeable. Right? Some of you have that amazing ability to be able to walk into a room, the room be on fire, and never notice it. Right? The kids can be painting things on the walls, you know, stabbing each other with spoons, you know, pouring things in the piano, have never notice it. Even you will notice this. When Jesus returns, it will not be in a kind of quiet fashion. Instead, verse 30, when Jesus appears in the heavens, he will bring with him all of the glory and the honor and the respect and the dignity and and all of the light that belongs to him. And I love how Jesus here kind of highlights what's the response. That immediately when he shows up, all of the tribes of earth know what's happening. There's no like, ah, I wonder what's going on. That's odd, right? There's none of that. This is, I think, perhaps where some of the movies or books that have tried to deal with this that are kind of written to the large church as a whole miss it, where it's that they try to create a sense of drama. And yeah, there's drama, but they're all in the wrong parts. (laughs) The drama's not on our response. The drama is on who has stepped inside creation in this fashion. The king of glory is arriving and all people everywhere will know exactly what's happening. For the vast majority of them, it will be a a, a reason for grief. Why? Because they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now again, that language, clouds of heaven, that's taken from a number of different places, but in Ezekiel particularly, uh, that language is used for the language, uh, uh, for the kind of the way that God covers himself in glory. We do sing one hymn that, you know, clothed in accessible light. It's light that protects us from God because he's too beautiful and grand and glorious to even behold. Here you have similar language in Ezekiel where his glory is described as a cloud that descends on the earth and the cloud obscures him because he's too great to even see. Jesus here coming with so much glory that it's resplendent inside creation. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his people, his elect, from uh, everywhere. From one end of heaven to the other, all of his people will be gathered. A noticeable end 
is coming to all things. Now, I, I find this to be incredibly intriguing is because, again, it's foundational to how the Bible is written and how I'm supposed to think and feel and act and foundational to how you're supposed to think and feel and act that this life, as great as it is, and mine's great, could be snuffed out at any moment. Now, again, it could be a massive heart attack. You've all heard the story of the PCA pastor almost a decade ago, I guess now, who was preaching on heaven, said, I can't wait to go there, and then had a heart attack and died right on the spot. That was his last words in the pulpit. So what a great way for him to go. I mean, the rest of the church needs trauma counseling forever, but okay, fair enough. What a great way to go. But to be reminded that if it's not in death that it ends, then it's in this fashion that all of creation ends. And I'd offer just a couple of quick, quick applications on this. One is um, uh, our current kind of educational model is that we love to educate through alarmism. Right? What that means is the way that we like to educate people kind of nationally and through the media and things like that is to try to scare the fool out of them so they do the opposite. Right? That's why we talk about the uh, environment the way that we do, is to terrify people so they behave differently. That's why we talk about disease the way that we do, so we terrify people so they do differently. We, we educate through alarmism. Uh, and the interesting thing is, is they're ripping off God, but very poorly. Because one of the things that we're trying to educate as our nation currently is to say, look, it's all going to continue this way forever. And interestingly, the Lord's point is the exact opposite. You should be alarmed because you're going to die and everybody else in here. And the only people that won't are the people that are alive when this happens. And this is fairly significant. So one, we don't have to be afraid of all the things that the, the media, that the educational system, that our politicians, that our uh, entertainers tell us to be afraid of. You don't, you don't have to be afraid of those things, friends. You really don't. You need to be afraid of God, but you don't have to be afraid of whatever they're going to tell you. I mean, again, I'm old enough to remember being taught in school when I was young that we were supposed to be afraid of the upcoming Ice Age. I mean, I'm telling you, man, they, they worked us over in fourth grade. It was a hard thing. Man, I didn't know I was powerful enough to worry about that, but I got to worry about it now. No, don't worry about it. Don't be the distracted driver, the, the preoccupied driver that's focused on all the wrong things and missing the big point. A noticeable end is coming to all things. Uh, verses 32 through 35, 36. I think there's a challenge in here for us to pay attention to the right things. So first, a noticeable end is coming to all things, but Second, pay attention to the right things. Verse 32, uh, from the fig, tr fig tree, learn its lesson. And I'm going to be honest, this parable is a toughie. Right? This one is really hard. Uh, best understanding, I think the clearest here is uh, the point that Jesus is making is that when you look at a fig tree, and you can see in the climate in which they're living, when the branch 
is those green kind of shooter branches that come off and it's beginning to grow and you're beginning to see leaves come out, you know that it's almost summertime. The, maybe the, the, the Carolina illustration of this would be when you see the Bradford pears flower out, you know it's almost summer. Right? I mean, we all know the Bradford pears. They're pretty, they're everywhere, and they smell like rotten fish. We all know what they are. But you know that when all the Bradford pears are flowering in white and all of, you know, you know it's almost summer. You know that it's time for it to be nice. Jesus here is actually making the point to say, look, look and pay attention because when you see the signs, you're going to know that the end is almost here. It's almost time. Likewise, so also when you see these things, you'll know uh, he's near. He's at the very gates. It's, it's going to happen. Now, interestingly here, I think verse 34, he's kind of giving them an object lesson. Look, as proof of this, some of you aren't even going to be dead yet when some of this speech is fulfilled. Some of him listening, some of the guys listening to him right now are still going to be alive when Jerusalem is invaded in 70 AD. Some of them are still going to be alive when Titus destroys the temple at Vespasian's command. Some of them are still going to be alive when they see the massacre of the Jews take place in Jerusalem following the destruction of the temple. Some of them will still be alive. And Jesus is calling their attention to say, look, my word, it's not going to go away. I know what I'm talking about. It's not a mistake. Pay attention to the right things. Look for the right markers. And I, I'm going to, again, I, I love poking the proper amount of fun. I try at least uh, at the right things. In America, I think this is one of those things that we have perhaps excelled at doing poorly. We have come up with more aberrant and bizarre end times views and predictions than any other nation, I think, in human history. I can't confirm that, but I, I think it's probably accurate. I mean, I remember growing up in Charlotte and having one of the pastors in the area going on the record saying that he thought that the character of Barney was representative of the Antichrist. And I'm like, brother, I mean, you got to pick your battles, man. Like, I mean, sure, he's irritating. I mean, man. But really, that, that's where you're going to say, that's it? That's it. That's, that's the sign you're paying attention to. And I, I think, though, there is probably one primary reason why our nation has produced so many kind of wacky views in regards to these things. Uh, and I think it's because we tend to be a nation of narcissists and we have equated the church in the United States of America with 100% the church of the New Testament and the great and shining example of the church in the entire world. In that we've, we've kind of said we are the end all and be all of the church. So when politics go badly in America, we say, oh, look, it's proof of the end times. And when a guy we don't like wins the presidency, oh, look, it's proof of the end times. Or when things happen that we don't like, whatever it is, we, oh, look, it's proof of the end times. I think perhaps maybe a better way for us to think about the American church is that we're simply the publishing branch of the entire world church. 
mean, that's really what we do. We just write books. A lot of them are terrible, honestly. A lot of them are awful. But we're the publishing branch of the world church. I mean, it's, we're not even the center of Christianity more, anymore. Uh, we know, know the exact numbers. I suspect there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States at this point. If that hasn't happened yet, it's going to be in the next decade. Which is crazy to think about, isn't it? I mean, there's more Presbyterians in Brazil than there are in America, much less South America. There are more ARP members in Pakistan than there are in the United States. We're not the center of the church, friends. We never have been. We never will be. The Lord is king over his people, and we need to kind of be content with the place where we're called. We don't have to run everything through the matrix of American politics. I think this has been one of the things that's been more concerning, not in the last probably six years for me, but that the, the six years prior to that, that 10 years prior to that, how much we were comfortable talking kind of about American politics being the signs of the end times. You realize, I mean, just to put it in perspective, you realize we still all could be the early church. I mean, it's weird to think about, but we could have 100,000 years of history left. And in the history books, like, you know, you got the early church in Jerusalem, you have the early church in America, and that's all we are, and we disappear and we're gone. We might just be a footnote in history, that's all we are, but let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. I suspect, again, uh, part of the reason why uh, we're missing out on the benefit of thinking about the end times is because we're so busy thinking about self, and specifically our political and cultural context. Okay, so what do we do with this? Right? If, if that's the wrong way to do it, if it's uh, wrong to kind of be preoccupied with self, what do we do with it? Well, uh, 36 and following, I think 36 through 44 uh, gives us uh, an idea. Point number three, we, we are called as Christians to live in a way that is ready for the end. Whether that be being struck dead right now, a car accident on the way home, a prolonged illness, or the second coming, we are called to live ready for the end. I love uh, verse 36. Jesus explains really, uh, again, kind of why our, our guesses are bogus. I love this. Anytime someone says they know when Jesus is coming, you guarantee you know they're a false teacher. Uh, verse 36, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor interestingly at this point in history, at least even the Son himself didn't know. So what you're talking about then is a pastor who claims to have greater knowledge than Jesus when Jesus was in his ministry here. I'm not going to trust that pastor. I don't know about you. But interestingly, what does Jesus then do is kind of application of, okay, live in a way that is ready for death. Live in a way that is ready for the second coming. Uh, for in those days, he uses Noah as an object lesson. What was happening in Noah's time? The world was filled with people. Don't forget this. The world was filled with people. There's a very good reality that the possibility, uh, the population of the earth could have been close to a billion people by that point, simply because life expectancy was so long, right? Nobody died. When you live 900 years, you're able to see your great, 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 great grandchildren all at the same time because nobody's dying because you're living almost a thousand years. You have a, a planet that is filled with humans, and all of them die except for eight in a flood. All of them. 
all of them die. And interestingly, what was their life like the day before the flood? Well, their life was filled with eating and filled with drinking and filled with getting married and giving in married, uh, giving in marriage. It was filled with the normal seas of life. I mean, you would say verse 38 describes America, except we don't do the marriage thing anymore. We, we do other things instead. Right? It's a nation, eating and drinking, participating in sexual disobedience. Until the day of destruction. Living in a way that is it's preoccupied with the, the benefits and the blessings, the, the quote, quote, good things of this life. And forgetting that there's a day where it all is going to end. Verse 39, they were unaware until the flood came and killed them all. Now, in terms of the specific end times application, there are going to be people laboring in a job. One of them is going to be a Christian and they'll live forever. One of them will not and be under God's judgment. He's not telling us all to quit our jobs and to quit working and to just kind of sit and twiddle our thumbs and wait for uh, Jesus to come back or for death to take us. We actually get the impression that's part of what the Thessalonian church was doing, which is why they get a pretty good pastoral letter from Paul being like, don't do that. Go about your work, go about your business, go about uh, getting married and giving in marriage, go about eating and drinking, go about raising children, go about, uh, you know, investing, but go about it with the thought in mind that this is all going to come to an end. And it might be today. I mean, that's why he uses the, the, the language here in verse 42, stay awake, be, be attentive, He doesn't actually mean it's sinful to sleep. We know that, and the scriptures are clear in other places. The Lord gives sleep to his righteous people. But what he's meaning is not stay awake until you die, right? Three days in it, something like that, four days without sleep, your brain just kills itself. It's like, I'm out, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. Instead of living in a way that is attentive and prepared for whatever time it is. Because the whole point is you don't know when it's going to be. You don't know when your number is going to be called. You don't know when the Lord is coming back. You don't know when your time is up. If you did, you could plan for it. That's kind of the point. This illustration he gives in verse 43. (laughs) If somebody owned a house, knew when the bad guys were coming to rob him, he'd be sitting there with a gun. Bad guys walk in, story's over, pretty easy. Problem is, he doesn't know when they're coming. Likewise for us. Verse 44, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour. You do not expect. He's coming back. You're not going to know it. I'd love for it to be about 30 seconds from now. Right? Just finish the sermon. Done. Best conclusion to a sermon ever. That'd be pretty cool. But to live with this in our minds and in our hearts, and the first kind of thing you question you'd have is, well, what does it mean to live in this way? 
What does it mean to live kind of in light of the fact that I'm ready to die? And the first thing is, is it requires a relationship with God, the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. It's been the story of this entire book, this book written by one God for his people. But it's the story of how, look, he knows you're a sinner. And he loves his people anyways. And while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus went to the cross to die unjustly, because he never did anything wrong, but to die so that our sins could be forgiven and would be forgiven and have been forgiven. Friends, that's the first step in living a life that is ready to go. Because you know your hope is not in being a good person. You know your hope is not in, well, I I hope there's nothing left after it's done. I I hope the afterlife is good. I hope it'll all work out. No, that's not your hope. Your hope is in God who has promised that his son's death would be enough. And you would never have to worry I don't know if I've told this story here. I was preaching at one of the churches in our presbytery a number of years ago. Uh, This is probably one of the most emotionally traumatic moments of my preaching career. Uh, I was preaching in a church in our presbytery, and I made one of the closing points of my sermon was, you know, there are very few things as powerful as watching an aging saint die well. It's profound. Now, this is the joy of my job, is that I've been able to watch this happen more times than I can count offhand right now. Holy men and women called to glory, and how it, it reorients your heart. I made that point in my sermon, finished my sermon, walked down and sat about the fourth row right there, eh, maybe sixth row. And the guy in front of me had a heart attack and dropped dead. They were able to resuscitate him a few moments later. He was out. Like, I remember the first noise I heard, it sounded like a bowling ball had hit the pew, and it was actually his face hitting the pew in front of him from when he went out, just gone. And uh, getting ready to serve communion, and the pastor had to stand up in front of the church and was like, look, we have a major problem right now. We just got to get everybody out, so you got to go now. And we all go running into the fellowship hall, and I'm like, I need a moment. Like, I am a mess. I don't know who this man was, but he was sitting two rows in front of me, and I watched him go. And at the time, I thought he was gone. It adds a little bit of weight to a sermon. <laughs> you make the point about an aging saint dying well, and the guy falls out right in front of you two minutes later. At the time, we thought he was dead. Now, interestingly, the Lord revived him enough and was, <laughs> it was miraculous he, he actually joined us in the fellowship meal after the service was done but whew, you never know living in such a way that you know the Lord and that you know his good gospel and you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you know his spirit so that when your name is called you're ready I suspect also just quickly This might change our priorities just a touch. And it might add a little bit of perspective 
to our lives. Right? I know I've used this before, but I've had a great summer of growing things in my house. My grass has been absolutely beautiful. It has been gorgeous. But it's grass. And that created order is going to come to an end. And that yard is going to be destroyed in some fashion and will cease to be. Maybe not to be quite so preoccupied with my grass, but to make sure I'm preoccupied with being ready to have that heart attack and go. And I acknowledge that I think many of the hardest things in life are the things where cause and effect are delayed, right? Where when we, we do a thing, we don't get to see the benefits or the consequences until much later. This is even harder, I think, perhaps, because this is a cause and effect that we don't even really see the cause and we don't really see the effect, but we know there is a consequence, And I think Jesus ends in verses 45 through the end, highlights kind of two really important points to think about this to help encourage us. It's not just that this is intended to be scary and to scare the hell out of you, literally. There is a great reality in that. I think he's doing that. But the men that he's talking to are getting ready to be murdered over the next several years. The vast majority of them will be murdered in literally some of the most cruel fashion that humans have ever devised. Peter crucified upside down, not even worthy to be crucified the way his Lord was. Horrible ways. And it's interesting that as preparation for them in verses 45 through 47, the Lord reminds them, the Lord Jesus reminds them that God is so gracious and is so generous and is so kind and so merciful that even though you are a mess, he rewards obedience. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master serves? So he gives a parable. The illustration is the master of the house is leaving and he leaves a slave in charge. What does that slave do? Well, what's going to happen if that slave is faithful? Guess what's going to happen when the master returns? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Right? When the master comes home and the slave's doing what he's supposed to do and taking care of things, it's, it's a happy master. Right? Again, perhaps the better illustration for some of us in here will be you know, those times when the wife goes on a trip. Maybe she comes home a, a day early you weren't expecting and the house is already clean. Not the like, you know, three-hour bachelor scramble right before she gets home. It's in better condition than when she left. Of course, that's a happy wife when she gets home, isn't it? Place looks nice. It's, uh, dishes are done. Children aren't dead. It's a good thing. It's a low bar, isn't it? Tell how things work in my house. What does Jesus say in verse 47 to that slave? Truly I say to you, the master will set him over all his possessions. He will bless him so richly. The converse being a problem though. If the master returns home, 
and finds that he's been living the bachelor life and squandering all the resources, being abusive to the other helpers, wasting what God has done, well, that one's going to be in problems. And in verse 41, Jesus puts it into kind of concrete illustrations, pretty gruesome. That one will be cut in pieces, put with the hypocrites, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Lord loves to reward faithfulness because He is so generous. He will punish unfaithfulness. I love that that's a really sweet incentive. And uh, I had a, a teacher in high school, I won't remember her um, probably for the rest of my life. She was a, my chemistry teacher, AP chemistry teacher. She was a marvelous woman. But uh, I remember her frequently saying when she was tempted to do evil things, she would be like, look, I'm just not going to do that because knowing my luck, I would be doing that when Jesus came back. And I don't want to be the one found doing such and such when Jesus comes back. Right? Her friends tempted her with a perhaps less than reputable bachelorette party, and she was like, look, (laughs) I do not want to be doing that. Knowing my luck, Jesus will come back, and I'll be like, oh, of course, right, now. And I think that perhaps probably says a little bit about ethics, where when we know we're like, "Mm, I would be embarrassed if Jesus came back and found me doing that, then don't do it, please. Perhaps maybe a better way to think about it is our life is to be structured in such a way that when King Jesus returns in glory, we can be excited and not have our first thought be like, oh, rats, I wish that had been like 30 minutes later. (laughs) Because realistically, you know that exact feeling, don't you? Where you're like, if only it had been like 30 minutes later or an hour earlier, I wouldn't have had chance to be so embarrassed. Because here's the reality, friends. Much like, much like my coach growing up, there is oncoming traffic. And unfortunately, in this situation, it's unavoidable. Your life is going to end, and one of the great joys of Christianity is that it prepares us for that very task, either in preparing us to die or preparing us for the created order to end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love your people so much that even when you speak of our death, you speak of it as sleep, for we know we will not stay dead. Lord, we admit readily that many of us live without being ready to die. We know that's unwise, and yet we still continue to do it. Would you please forgive us for our sin? And would your spirit please be pleased to work in us, to make us ready to go? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.